Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Female Founders Network, a podcast brought to you by invoice to go I'm your host, Nat, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sylvie. Hey, everyone. We record our show in the Forbes Street studio in downtown Sydney, Australia, but we bring guests from all over the world. So you'll hear people from the US, the United Kingdom, Europe, the Asia Pacific, anywhere that we find women who lead and inspire others. This is a great podcast for women who are navigating business ownership, leadership, or just life. Each episode should connect you with someone else's story, but also leave you with practical tips and advice that you can use in your own life and in your own business. Hi guys, today we're speaking with a woman who's actually my former boss and an inspiration to many. Her name is Jess Ellerm. She's a tech guru, the founder and former CEO of a truly forward-thinking fintech startup and an advocate for facilitating meaningful change through technology. We'll talk about how she was able to manifest a startup opportunity, make short-term financial sacrifices for a long-term gain, and her advice on trusting your intuition in business. Hey Jess, how are you? I'm good. How are you? So good. Nice sunny day. It's a bit crisp out there. (laughs) So we're so happy to have you on the show today. So for everybody who's listening out there, Jess has an amazing story. She's actually founded a company and she's sold it. Um, And it is in the area of fintech, which is traditionally kind of a male dominated industry. So Jess, why don't you tell us your story? Start from the beginning and tell us everything about you. Where did you, (laughs) yeah, where did you start? How long have you got? (laughs) (laughs) All the time you want. Well, I'm, all right, awesome. Well, um, thank you so much for having me on. It's It's a real honor and it's great to do something with someone like you, Nat, because obviously we had a great time together and you were sort of part of the journey as well. So for those that are listening, I uh, live in Sydney, Australia, but I'm not originally from here. I'm actually from a country called New Zealand, which hopefully people have heard of. I think we're sort <laughs> of getting up there now, thanks to our prime minister. Um, she seems to be somewhat of an nas- uh, international superstar at the moment. She really she is. like Oceana's Michelle Obama, basically. Yeah. Isn't she? <laughs> she's yeah. awesome. She's amazing. <laughs> yeah. She's amazing. Um, so, yes, I'm from New Zealand. I grew up in a, a city called Christchurch, which is in the South Island. Uh, and I lived there until I was um, 18. And then I went to university also in New Zealand, uh, down in Dunedin, which is further south and much colder. Uh, and then I wanted to spread my wings. So I headed overseas to London and I studied music at the Royal Academy um, of Music for a year. I play the viola, also play the violin and the piano. And I did that for a year, sort of toyed with the idea of becoming a musician instead of a scientist, which was what my degree was. Wow. Um, but in the end, I ended, yeah, I ended up back in Sydney. I sort of had sort of stopped over on a trip to London and fell in love with it and ended up back in Sydney. And I finished off my honours there at Sydney University in chemistry. That was what I majored in. Still studied music, but decided that probably wasn't going to be the long-term career path for me. And once I graduated, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and so a friend of mine suggested that I go along to a graduate recruitment day. They recruited for sales and marketing professionals, mainly for tech companies, actually. And this was back in 2009. And I was very green. I, I just, you know, I was looking for a job. I just wanted to earn some money. You know, when you're a student, you're sort of dirt poor. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, <laughs> and I, I, um, I got a job at Tyro and that was my 
intro into fintech, although it wasn't called fintech then. Tyra was just known as a payments company. Mm -hmm. And I started there as a graduate. I was on the sales team. It was a very small sales team at the time. And we were selling payments devices into medical practices. And the technology that Tyro had enabled patients to claim their Medicare rebate as soon as I'd paid the doctor. So it was really awesome for patients and for doctors because doctors would get their full consultation fee up front, but patients also wouldn't have to wait sort of months to get their money back from Medicare. It could be deposited right back into their bank account using the Tyro terminal. So that was sort of my intro into the power that fintech has and financial technology. Oh, so eventually Tyro actually became business owners and consumers' lives. Yeah. And that sort of, I worked there for a number of years and um, sort of moved in different places throughout that business. Yeah. yeah you know. Sorry. Sorry. Just to, um, really quickly, we have a global audience. So I just want to, for those who are mm. listening, like in the States or something, fintech or financial tech or the company Tyro that Jeff started out at, it's like Stripe or PayPal. It's any sort of technology that helps with a financial service. Correct. And it, probably the closest analogy in that sort of vein is something like Square, for yeah. example, where there's a payment device and a point of sale and yeah. it's used mainly by small business owners. Yeah. Very good. Okay, did it, keep did, going. Did oh, it sorry. feel like a startup when you were working at Tyro? Yes, it did. <laughs> very much so. It was a, uh, We weren't making money at the time and, and the business was very transparent and very open. The offices were also very cool. So I think that ticks a startup box. Yeah. Uh, and there was a real sense of we're taking on the giants. You know, we really want to come in and do something. We know we're the minnow and the small guy. Yeah. Um, but what can we do with just a bunch of really smart, talented people that don't know anything necessarily about banking or payments, but know how to solve complex problems? And there was a real uh, attitude and I guess, belief inside the business that it, you didn't have to be an expert at, you know, finance to make a difference in finance. And I think that that kind of attitude has always stuck with me. And I sometimes yeah. I call it, you know, so a lot of people have the curse of knowledge, you know, they know too much about a space to really see the opportunities and the way that they can change it. Yeah. I think that's always the benefit mm -hmm. of startups and people that start businesses, they come and they look at things differently. Yeah. Yeah. From a user's perspective rather than an expert quote unquote perspective, right? Mm -hmm. You flourished at Tyro. So what did that career growth look like for you? Well, it was a wonderful environment in that it was really, it was a, a meritocracy, not sort of a hierarchical senior, yeah. seniority type environment. So yeah. if you were, you know, gung-ho and you wanted to do something and you put in the effort and you could demonstrate the capability and the aptitude, then, you know, you could go far. And that's one of the great things about high growth companies. And so during my tenure at Tyro, I worked in the sales team. I also worked in the marketing team. And I also then worked in a quasi product operational sales role when we got the banking license, helping to bring our lending, our first lending product to life, a cash flow lending solution for small businesses and really trying to knit together, okay, what do the customers want? What do customer support need to know? How do product build this? What do the credit team need to know? How do we operationalize this? Mm -hmm. And that was really, I think, where I got my first taste of what it's like to build something from scratch. Mm -hmm. And I, I was able to do it in a very protected environment, but it gave me a sense of, okay, you can really do something, you know, if you're in a very collaborative way and you can make something come from nothing to something. And I think that was something that really sparked a new chapter of my kind of career in development, which was, I really liked building stuff. Yeah. And when I met the guys that started Zooper and asked me to come on board as a co-founder and to run the business, obviously it was a space that I knew very little about, superannuation. Um, but I 
really loved the idea of being able to to build something and do something in that space. So yeah, I think thank, thanks to Tyro, I was able to mentally take on that challenge and yeah. feel confident to do that. Yeah. Would you say that you're more of an, like an operational kind of logical thinker or more of a creative thinker? Or do you think you're a bit of both? It's a good question. I think I'm a bit of both. And I, I probably that goes back to if I think about the things I was always interested in as a child right through the way to university. I was always kind of having this competing desire to kind of nurture my analytical side, hence, you know, the science and the chemistry. Yeah. But also I loved the creative side. I loved making music and I could very easily visualize myself as a professional musician. And I worked, you know, pretty much the level of what's required to be a professional musician. Mm-hmm. And music obviously is creative, but you know, science is often very creative too and vice versa. Music can also be very analytical. And so I think there's a really interesting balance there for me anyway and my personality. Those two things have always sort of tugged at each other as I've kind of moved through life. And I definitely know when either side is undernourished and I have to sort of find ways to keep both of those things happening in my life to feel like I'm personally satisfied. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so first of all, superannuation is a word that you don't hear outside of Australia. So before we get into your next step of your career, I just want to explain it for a second. So in Australia, we have a 401k-like system, which is mandatory. So you are you know, required to put 9.5% of your income into a retirement account. And these retirement accounts, they're called superannuation. But there are lots of different choices out there, but they weren't getting much uh, press or much attention until recently. Just noticed this, right? And it became the next step in your career. So tell us about that transition, you know, coming out of that safe space, as you called it, or protected environment of Tyro to starting your own company or joining a company and, and heading it up. Yeah, it it was a huge leap of faith, I think, not only in my own abilities, but in the people that I was going into business with. And they were amazing. And it's been a bit of a roller coaster, to be honest. But I think what's really interesting about superannuation is that close to 10% of our paycheck goes there every month. But historically, up until recently, like you said, Nat, no one had thought about that. And I think when I also realized I was one of those people that had never really thought about it. It sort of really intrigued me. You know, why did I not care where 10% of my money was going? If, right. if 10% of my pay that I see every month went somewhere and it was visible to me and, you know, I was seeing that every month, I would be asking questions about that and I would be curious. But because the way Super was built meant we never saw it come in and we never saw it go out. It was a very opaque space. Obviously, that meant it was a breeding ground for some not so great things to be going on in the background. Um, and there's been a lot of pressure on the industry over the past three to four years. There's been numerous royal commissions, financial inquiries, and some of those not so nice things have have definitely come out. So I think there was a real desire from us as founders of Zupa to bring transparency and to shed some light onto that business. And to also tell people, this is what's happening with your money. Are you okay with that? Do you want to make a different decision? And people, especially I think of our generation, do want to make good decisions about lots of things in their lives. And often they mean ethical decisions or conscious purchasing decisions. And we could see that that could really translate into how people saved for their retirement. You know, were they saving in things that were ultimately going to detract from their retirement? Everyone wants to think that they're going to retire in a beautiful world, sit alongside a beach. But what if those beaches aren't there? What if the oceans aren't clean? And I think those sorts of things really started to show us that we could think about money differently. We could think about savings differently and we could ultimately have a choice. And that was quite powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So 
the main controversies um, that you guys identified and, and that the press started identifying, it started, you know, the public started to become more woke about it, for lack of a better term, right? Like, yeah, were, it was, you know, it was fees. So like, if you're in America or somewhere listening to this, think about, you know, taking, you have this mandatory financial accountant, you have no say and 10% of your money every year goes to them. And they can charge you whatever fee you want. And you're kind of unaware of what they're charging you. And then the other thing was, like you said, where your money is going. So where that financial investment is going, it could be going to companies or causes that you don't believe in, right? Do you want to expand on that a little bit? In terms of what was happening here, the yeah. sort of negative side? Yeah, you're the yeah. expert in that. <laughs> I'm <laughs> yeah. just kind of so, comparing it to the States. But I'm like, please tell me yeah. what's right. <laughs> Look, it's probably very similar. So here at the fees that you pay on your super they could have been higher than 3%. You know, recently the government had to step in and say, you can't charge more than 3%, which just Mm. tells you a lot about what people were potentially charging if the government has to step in and tell them they can't do that. Not only that, but alongside your superannuation, you also often have insurance. And people often had multiple superannuation accounts because you got one every time you joined a new job. And therefore, they had multiple insurance policies. And so the fees that they were paying could have been in excess of, you know, thousands of dollars per year. But yet they were completely unaware because there wasn't this level of transparency and no one really looked or thought about their super. So all this stuff was sort of happening in the shadows. And it's not uncommon to hear of people that had superannuation balances of, you know, 5, 10, 15K only to log back into that account five or, you know, six years later and see that everything that had gone in from their employer had actually been eaten away wow. by fees wow. to the point where, and that was actually the case of one of our founders, Aaron. And that was what really drove him. You know, he was American and he came to Australia and he had that exact experience. And so that's not a nice experience. No. And <laughs> I think you've got to, you've got to ask yourself a question as an industry. If we are able to take more in fees from somebody than they've put in into their investment account, then something's just really not right. And And that obviously lots of people have been asking that question. And so it's kind of this, we we needed as part of Zupra and as a part of the other stuff around being more woke potentially about where your investments are, people also needed to pay attention to it just purely for financial reasons. You know, even if you didn't care what your money was being invested in, you still needed to pay attention to it. You needed to mop up these multiple accounts, consolidate them. You needed to kind of cut back your fees you needed to eliminate these unnecessary insurance policies because it was just a feeding frenzy for these yeah. for these billion dollar organizations and to be fair it still really is and while the level of consciousness has definitely increased around super especially so because of the pandemic i think everyone's just looking more closely at their finances there's still a, a long way to go and there's still a lot of money that's being wasted because of the way the system is being constructed the thing yeah. is as well is that of course like $10,000 now over 30 years the kind of compound interest makes that so much more over time exactly if it's not being taken away so I think it was this part of the Royal Commission when they they worked out that a 30 year old person over their lifetime of all these extra super fees and insurance would lose out by like $200,000 or something over over that's right that sounds yeah so there was a productivity commission and there were some stats that came through and that definitely sounds like one of those particular points yeah which is so crazy yeah so you decided that you were going to come up with or you were going to join this company that had found a solution to the problem or was starting to fight back in some way so tell me about that building that business 
superannuation, despite us sort of talking about how important it is to watch it and find out what fees you're paying and find all your accounts, because it has such a delayed, I guess, gratification process, you can't access that money until you're sort of in your mid-60s. Like many things when you don't need to worry about it until you're older, when you're young, you just don't think about it. There are far too many other financial pressures you have, such as saving to buy a home, you know, paying your rent, simply just earning enough to kind of get by. That means you you just don't think about your super and it's very difficult to get you to think about your super despite knowing all those things that we know because it is associated with retiring and I guess kind of death in a way. You know, that's the end of your right. life. I'm not so interested in what's happening at the end of my life. Mm. It has a real image problem. It has a real super, it's uncool and it's uninteresting. And if I just talk to you about fees and returns, again, it's sort of mathematical and financial and a lot of people don't feel comfortable in that environment or talking about those things. I think the the big insight we had was that if you want to get people interested in their money, don't really talk about it in financial language, talk about it in human language and talk about it in terms of their values. So that really led back to what are the things that you do care about right now? Chances are you do really care about the environment. Chances are you're going to the gym every day eating turmeric, you know, drinking turmeric lattes, you care yeah. about health and wellness. Yeah. Chances are you are someone that's interested in the, having the latest gadgets, you know, you're, you're hanging out for the next Apple iPhone. So what are those passions that you have right now? Well, what if I told you your money could be invested in those passions and, you know, those are, happen to be industries that are just booming all around the world. Okay. And now you're probably interested. Well, what if I told you that you didn't have to save any money to invest in those things? You've actually got a pool of money ready to invest in it right now. It just so happens it's your superannuation. And so I think leading people along a path of changing their perception about superannuation and what they could do with it and to, into something that was actually a really powerful agent in their life, not an afterthought, was yeah. how we approached it. So it was actually quite a brand-led, marketing-led business But under the hood, it obviously had to have great tech because once you get someone to that decision point, obviously, you know, you have to live up to their expectations. You've got them all excited. Okay, Mm. what do we do next? Where do I sign? You know, how do I do this? This is great. And traditionally, the superannuation industry had operated on paper form. So if a typical superannuation fund had been able to get you to that point, they would have handed you a paper form and it would have all been over. (laughs) And you would have had to call five different funds to find your money and each of them would have had a paper form. So suddenly there's a stack of paper forms on your desk and you know what, I was kind of interested when you were talking to me about it, but it's three weeks later and I've got better things to do. Yeah. <laughs> so that whole process of then doing, taking the action had to be incredibly easy. And that was what we were able to build. And so you would jump onto our website. Obviously, you can still jump onto our website and you would select what investments you wanted, what things led you know directly to your passions. You could mix and match them. We know that you care about the environment and technology, not just one or the other. Customize what we would essentially call your pizza. So toppings on your pizza, you know, kind of trying to take away from that portfolio language and that um, financial jargon to Mm. really language that you understand. And then online, we could find all of your superannuation accounts um, in real time and we could transfer them during that process. So sitting in your pajamas on the sofa, you know, watching the latest episode of The Bachelor, you could sign up to Zuba, find all your missing lost super accounts, um, consolidate and save yourself thousands of dollars in in basically three to five minutes. So that was really how the product came to life. And you mentioned that you started it with some co-founders. How did you meet them? How did that all come about? 
So that came about because I was writing a lot at the time and I was writing about fintech and I had a personal blog. I was also writing for another amazing group of um, global writers called Daily Fintech. And I was doing some podcasting and I was doing that on the side of what I was doing at Tyro purely because I was interested in the space, but it became also a great vehicle for me to meet other like-minded people. Uh, And John, one of the co-founders had, had read one of my articles and he actually reached out to me on LinkedIn. And that wasn't uncommon. I would have people reach out to me on LinkedIn and want to chat. And, you know, so I agreed to meet him for a coffee. And that was really where the first conversation about Zupa and my potential involvement started. And it was about sort of five months from that conversation to actually essentially deciding to do it. And that was great because I got to know the guys and the team and learn a little bit more about the space and have a bit more of a think about the problem. Um, But yeah, it just goes to show like there is real power, I think, in in sort of being visible on that front if you're trying to build your career because you never know where that next opportunity is going to come from. And and that was definitely not where I'd expected any of those sort of writing engagements to lead. Yeah. So how big was the team when you joined? So there were three of us. Um, well, and and sort of another investor. He we would also call him a founder. You know, he was really instrumental in the early days. So mm-hmm. essentially four, um, and you know it was four of us for a long time. And we worked with a bunch of awesome people on and off during that journey. Um, the first kind of group we worked with quite heavily, who we still work with today, is a, a team called Cipher, and they were a tech team. And while we had internal tech, they also supported us. And it was always that balance between how do we build this product and how do we, you know, raise the funds? How do we convince the kind of regulatory bodies that we should be allowed to participate in this space? Mm-hmm. Um, but how do we do that in the leanest way possible? Um, as any sort of startup has. So we were a small team for a long time until, okay, we were like, right, this is really a thing now. You know, we've got all the key <laughs> contracts down. We can really, let's, let's, let's do this. Were you earning a salary at that point or did you just come on for equity? A bit of both. So I negotiated my way into equity upfront, obviously coming in as a co-founder, that's important, Mm -hmm. Um, but also a salary, obviously a much reduced salary from what I had been earning um, at the time at Tyro. But that is is pretty common when you walk into a startup, you're Mm -hmm. obviously looking at that whole kind of package, you know, my equity and my salary. You know, that was tough, I think. That's one of the things I think that probably stops a lot of people from making the jump. Um, Startups can be a financially difficult time. And, you know, I also personally invested into the business as well. So while I had, you know, founder equity, I also had, you know, my own, like many of us, our own money was in the business, our own personal money. And I was taking a small salary. And, you know, I think that is something that definitely would keep a lot of people from doing a startup is that financial pressure. I was able to definitely manage it, but I'm not going to say it wasn't tough sometimes. It was definitely tough. And, you know, I'm someone that doesn't have kids and, you know, doesn't have a mortgage and those other pressures. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of like, it's a short-term pain for long-term gain, you hope. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you hope, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But the hope turned into something, right? Because... You it grew did. super yeah. and it has become a really successful company. So can you tell That's us a little right. bit about that journey? Yeah. So I think when you're in the throes of, you know, building a business and then you are also, you know, working on the growth element, you can't help but think in the back of your mind, it's completely natural. You want to get a return on your investment. At what point do I exit this business or how do I see a return from this business? You know, what what does that look like? And for many of us, including us, I think that was sort of, 
I had said to myself, you know, this is a 10 year game. I'd seen what it took at Tyro to go mm. from um, not making money to being profitable, to being worth something. So yeah. I guess I came in eyes wide open thinking this is a decade of my life and you are going to choose to commit this and you are here for the long run. And this is, you've, you've placed the bet, the chips are down kind of thing mm-hmm. on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was definitely how we all approached it. And we were very fortunate to receive some backing from a major bank, National Australia Bank, so NAB Ventures, and they were fantastic. And we were about to, well, we were sort of midway through to close to closing our, our next round post their investment. And we fielded a number of acquisition offers. And I think for, for all of us at that point, it, we definitely hadn't expected it to come that soon. Mm. But we'd all sort of also equally kind of been under significant pressure at that point to get the business to where we'd gotten it to. You know, it's a it's a heavy load that you carry. And I think we sort of said, well, you know, this we weren't expecting this to come this soon. We've got two options here. You know, one, we continue on and we raise more money. Two is we actually seriously consider these acquisition offers. Mm. And we decided to consider the acquisition offers towards the end of 2019. Um, and in the end, we we successfully sold the business. And hindsight is a wonderful thing. I think, you know, if I had have carried the pressure of running that business into this year during the pandemic and the up and downs of the markets, I think it would have been very, very difficult for me personally and professionally. And I think also um, for the rest of the team. So I think, you know, hindsight, we we made a great decision. I mean, we felt good about the decision at the time, but you always can't help but wonder, right? You know, did yeah, I make the yeah. right decision? Should we just have taken it then, you know, the additional funding and kept going? Yeah. Um, but it, I think for Zupa, I think you've always got to, when you're a, an executive for a founder, you've always got to say, well, what's the right thing for the business? You know, what's the right thing for our customers? Being part of something Something bigger is probably great. You know, being, you know, we're now in a group that has multiple other superannuation funds and brands. And I think that's a great home for Zupa. And, yeah. and I've sort of come across during that acquisition to work with the team and be part of that business. And it's a great business. And I think, you know, a, a lot of people look for that kind of unicorn moment and that kind of, you know, listing. And sometimes that happens. But I think also you've got to take every opportunity along the way because sometimes those things don't happen. And you know, that's that's kind of the reality of startup life is you've got to make some very pragmatic, quick decisions sometimes when you're yeah. faced with multiple decisions. Yeah. The one thing too that really impressed me about you, Jess, and I mean, this is, I got an inside look at it, right? Because I was like running your little brand <laughs> marketing team, but yes. you took on so much, but then you also were very self-aware. So like you followed your intuition and when it was time, like when you felt yourself wearing down, you made that decision. And I think I respected that so much because I was like, look, she's given, this is her baby, right? She's given everything to this company, but she also has a self-awareness to know when to let go. And that's just so hard sometimes. It's so hard. And, uh, and I think it's a real, um, it's a real learning moment for an individual when you are faced with that. And I think I definitely, one of the things I learned about my personality during the journey was I'm so dogged, like I will not give up and I will persevere and I will, you know, all the things that people love about startup founders, but those have a negative, those work negatively back on yourself because at the end of the day, you're ultimately drawing from a reserve inside of you that, Mm. you know, is actually quite difficult to replenish. and. People talk a lot about looking for that type of quality in a startup founder. I think we also need to remember that there's a toll when you 
you know, give of that quality of yourself to mm. something. And look, I would still do that. I would still work at 110, 120% for something that I was, you know, really believed in, but I would probably take other measures to make sure that I had, you know, the required support around me so that it didn't deplete me in a way that I know that it can. Right. And I had great support networks around me at the time, but when you're young, I think, and very sort of idealistic, you yeah. think you you think you have more that you can do of yourself. You, I think you draw more on yourself because you're younger and because you have that energy. Yeah. You just don't have the quite realization what that's going to cost you down the track. Whereas older, you get a bit wiser and you're like, okay, yeah. do I really want to do that again? <laughs> yeah. I remember what it was like the first time. Isn't it amazing? I, I'm finding it truly astonishing, the difference between your early 30s and your late 30s. Oh, <laughs> like, it's so different. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, so my, my mental health is just as important as my productivity. <laughs> Look Absolutely. at that. That's, that's it. And I think you just nailed it, nailed it on the head with that. I think you do sacrifice that unconsciously when you're younger yeah. um, for productivity, for impressing others, success. for yeah. success. Yeah. yeah. And then I think you, you're right. You sort of wake up and you go, I can be just as successful if I nurture that other side of me because everything's got to be in balance. Right, right, exactly. So we only have a, a little bit of time left, but I would just love, you know, for you to give takeaways or pearls of wisdom if there are other women out there who are starting fintech companies or startups of any kind or they're they're about to go through this journey or maybe they're in the throes of the journey and they're looking for an exit or wondering if they can exit or whatever, you know, what pearls of mm. wisdom or advice would you give to women in that position? Oh, <laughs> that's a tricky one. Um, <laughs> I think you said it well before, which was trust your intuition. I think as women, we have amazing intuition. We have very strong intuitive powers. It's just something to do with womanness. I mean, I yeah. don't really know where it comes from, but we often have very good intuition, but we often don't trust it. Yeah. You know, we always second guess it. Right. And I would say even more so trust your intuition. There's a lot of people out there, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, it's just part of the game. Once you move from working for someone else to working for yourself yeah. um, or for for running a business, you, you enter a different sort of stratosphere of um, business relationship and you have to have your wits about you and you have to trust your intuition. And I think that's definitely something that I was able to hone a lot more. And it's not necessarily that you need to think the worst thing of people, but you you just need to think very carefully about everything. I guess mm -hmm. everyone has an agenda of some description. I mean, let's be honest. And you have to remember that that you don't fall prey to someone's negative agenda. I think that's probably the key thing. I think just trust your intuition. Again, like it's often said, but build as many good support networks around you as you can yeah. um, and make sure that you have the right people on the ride. And, you know, you need to have somebody that you can turn to and have a really honest conversation with and you need to listen to it. And mm -hmm. I think if you have that person, maybe that's your partner, but if you don't have a partner, find a, a friend who's willing to be there, that person for you. And I think if you have, if you trust your intuition and you have honest standing boards, then it's difficult to, to go wrong really. And even when things go wrong, that's okay. Things go wrong. You know, yeah. don't beat yourself up about it. You're yeah. not, no one's perfect. And yeah. You will make, I think walking into it and saying, you will make some really awesome decisions and you will make some really shitty decisions. Right. But at the end of the day, you just need to make decisions and you need to move on and keep pushing forward. And I think that's another thing. Don't get too hung up on the bad decisions. You know, yeah. if you looked at, we have a tendency, I think sometimes to focus on the negative and, yeah. you know, not overweight the positive. And so I think for women as well, that would be something, make the decision, move on 
You've kind of reached the pinnacle of what every startup founder wants to do. You've built an amazing company. You've exited. I just want to know what's next for Jess Ellum. <laughs> I'm trying to figure that out myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yoga, Pilates, <laughs> Well, I am. I'm sewing masks. So who knows? Maybe my um <laughs> awesome my mask pivot. making fashion business will take off. Yeah. So look, I think I, I think I'm taking my time at the moment. Like it's a I'm in a really great position. You know, I'm still close to the business. Um, I'm still sort of working on it day in and day out. And that for me is great because that's always what I wanted to do. Um, I think whatever comes next will show itself. I think I was saying this to you, Nat, the other day when we caught up. I'm Rather than trying to sort of force the next thing, I'm just going to sit back and have great conversations with people, but see what comes to me. And I think that's a little bit, again, of a mind shift change as well. You know, I'm so used to sort of getting out there and hustling and, you know, what's next? What should I be doing? I've got to be busy. Right now, I'm like, no, I think the right thing will show itself when I'm ready. And that is another sort of piece that I'm working on. Yeah. Trust the universe. Being okay with sitting still. Exactly. Yeah. Being okay with sitting still, trust the universe. Yeah. Right. Especially when you've gone through like a major period of production and Mm. kind of conquering the world and everything, then taking that time to just sit still and be okay with just being you. I agree. You're a major inspiration, Jess. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you for having me. (laughs) It was lovely chatting to you both. All right. We'll chat soon. Okay. Yeah. All right. See you. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by invoice to go We're an invoicing and billing app that helps business owners work and get paid from anywhere at any location around the globe. We're helping close the gender-based pay gap. Because the current U.S. pay gap sits at around 19%, listeners of the Female Founders Network podcast get exactly 19% off of any subscription. Just enter the code EMPOWERWOMEN at checkout.